When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on Something You Should Know, is it really good for you or your kids to take a multivitamin every day? I'll tell you what the science says. Then, the new world of dating. What's the best way to meet someone? Probably not on a dating app. I've yet to meet a marriage-minded woman who tells me, oh, I love the dating app so much. All the guys I meet are incredibly honest and kind, and it's so easy to find true love. I do not hear this, ever. Then, why flipping a coin may be a really good way to make a decision. And is the four-day work week soon to become a reality? We know that the five-day week, it's not working for the average person's health and lifestyle outcomes. And so moving to the four-day week, I think is a huge step for the evolution of business and for people. All this today on Something You Should Know. A shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird, and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been using Claritin D for years because, well, it just, it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hey, welcome. It's time for another episode of Something You Should Know. You know, when I was a kid, I remember taking multivitamins much of the time. And if you take a multivitamin or make your kids take a multivitamin, you may not need to. Research suggests that they don't really help. According to scientists at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, multivitamins, this is in a pretty big study, multivitamins failed to prevent cancer, heart disease, and all causes of death in the group they studied. Kids who took multivitamins did not perform any better or have any fewer sick days than kids who didn't take multivitamins. And a lot of doctors agree, saying multivitamins can actually give you a false sense of security. There is no substitute for a healthy, well-balanced diet. Some experts even caution that you're getting too much of what you don't need with a multivitamin, that you're better off checking with your doctor to determine exactly what you do need, rather than try to take one pill as kind of an overall insurance policy. And that is something you should know. Whether you're single, or in a relationship, or even married, you're going to find this discussion about dating really interesting. Dating has changed. It's changed a lot, mostly because of the internet. And now lots of people can meet lots of other people they would have never otherwise met before. Which might sound like a good thing, but it actually may not be. And then there's the same old conventional dating advice I'm sure you've heard about. Play hard to get. Don't be too interested. A, a woman should never ask a guy out. Is that good advice? 
Well, meet John Berger. He is an award-winning magazine writer and former senior writer at both Fortune and Money. He has taken a long, hard look at how the world of dating is going. And what he found is both interesting and troubling. And from it comes some very good advice. He's written about it in a book called Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. Hi, John. Welcome. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. So you write about the science of dating, but I think a lot of us like to believe that dating is not supposed to be science. It's supposed to be magic. It's supposed to, sparks are supposed to fly or not. And, and that's how this all works. And that, I don't know, there's something about if you look at it too closely through a scientific lens, it, it's not very pretty. So I'm a big believer in magic and romance. So I, we're on the same page. Um, the bit, the goal of Make Your Move, my new book, is to basically push back against a lot of the, the bad dating advice that singles, particularly women, have been getting from various dating gurus over the over the years, telling them that the only way to get a guy is by playing hard to get and by pretending that you don't actually like a guy who you actually like. Or nowadays, you have all these dating experts who are pushing singles towards online dating. And I don't you know, I, the, the science shows that online dating is actually a pretty terrible way to meet somebody. Well, that comes as a bit of a surprise because dating apps, online dating seems to be the way people are going, that that's the way to meet somebody now because the, the potential pool of people that you could meet is so much bigger and that therefore you should be able to find somebody. I've yet to meet a marriage-minded woman who tells me, oh, I love the dating app so much. All the guys I meet are incredibly honest and kind, and it's so easy to find true love. I mean, I, I, I do not hear this ever. Yet, if you look at the data, you know, most young singles, the way they're meeting is through the dating app. So my take is that, you know, today's younger marriage-minded singles are actually addicted to something they don't like. And actually, the you know Pew Research they came out with a survey I believe last year is which last year which confirms this that most people don't have a a favorable view of online dating. A majority of young women consider online dating to be unsafe, and one in five women uh, on dating apps have been threatened with physical violence. Wow, that's pretty amazing. My impression is that online dating is very popular, and yet. You're saying people don't like it, doesn't sound like they're very successful with it, and a large number of women feel threatened from doing it. Yeah, no, it's it's confusing because it's kind of easy. It's like online shopping. And one of the many things that worry me about the spread of online dating is how similar the culture is to online shopping. And nowadays, everything is kind of a value proposition. The same way you can you buy something on Amazon, it can be returned or exchanged. I think that's the same mindset that you find with online dating. And the way this shows up in the science and the data is that, that the breakup rates for couples who meet on dating apps are much higher than they are for couples who meet the old-fashioned way. So there was a Stanford study which came out a few years ago, and it showed that among couples who met on dating apps, the one-year breakup rate was 16%. Compare that to people who met as coworkers, it's 6%. Or if you met in church, it's 1%. So you know, people who meet in the real world and actually know the people they're going out on the first date with, those relationships fare much better. But it's funny because I, I've, I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I've, I don't hear a lot of people telling me how great online dating is and how easy it is to meet their soulmate. The conventional wisdom has always been that with my busy lifestyle, I don't meet people, I don't go to places, and I don't like to go to bars. And so online dating is really the best way to do it. That, that's the conventional wisdom, which seems to fly in the face of what you're saying. I hear that a lot, but l- let me just share a little story. So I was, I was giving a, a talk to a, a college group, and it, there was a, a young lady who made a similar point to the one you just made. Uh, basically, 
asking me, well, how the heck am I supposed to meet somebody if not through the dating apps? I posed a question. I asked them, okay, how many of you here have somebody you know and like from the real world, somebody who's single, and somebody whom you've ever wondered about dating? 40 people in the room, 40 hands went up. You know, so my take is that most singles, not all, but most singles, uh, particularly younger singles, already have somebody they know and like from the real world whom they're interested in dating, but basically they're afraid to ask them out. Why? Because this is the world we live in. I mean, particularly with millennials and and Gen Zers, there is a next level fear of, of awkwardness. For a lot of singles, particularly young singles, it's easier to take a chance on Tinder than ask out a coworker who they actually already have chemistry with. Because if it doesn't work, they have to see that coworker again the next day. Right. Exactly. But but this has always been the case. I mean, it, they, with dating, high rewards sometimes come with high risks. And human beings evolved as social animals. The way we connect is through shared experience. And this is why the breakup rates are so much lower for people who meet in the real world than they are for people who meet online, because this is how human beings connect. Is the goal of dating... Is it your sense anyway that the goal of dating is still to find a mate for life kind of thing? Or are people dating now differently, different goals? They just want someone to hang with. I mean, has has the basic goal of dating changed? Yeah, it probably has. I mean, I definitely agree that you don't need to be married or have a life partner in order to lead a happy life. And I think there are plenty of singles out there who are really happy being single and remaining single. And actually, for those people, a a dating app might make a lot of sense. But if you're looking for kind of a longer lasting relationship, the research shows that, that dating apps probably are not serving you well. I thought that the dating apps and the online dating websites had gotten more sophisticated, that that they're be- better at matching people who theoretically belong together or are more likely compatible with each other. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you, but you know, it's funny that the, the founder of OkCupid had a, a blog post a few years ago in which he admitted that, that they did this experiment in which they connected people who matched on their search criteria and also connected people who didn't match at all. And they found that that the success rate for the relationships was no different. Now, unsurprisingly, this, this blog post was removed not, not long after because it, it caused, you know, a bit of a stir and it kind of questioned, well, what's the point of online dating if the, if the algorithms don't work, but it's telling. So what's the advice then? What, what's the most successful way to date in the 21st century? My argument is that, A, it's good to get off the apps, but equally as importantly, I'm, I'm always encouraging single women to make the first move and to be assertive because one of the other trends we've seen over the past several years is that guys particularly younger guys are a little gun shy. They're kind of worried about saying or doing the wrong thing. And there's a lot of research out there showing that women who are assertive, women who ask out guys, uh, tend to fare far better. And, you know, my big you know, message to women is that guys like women who like them. So if you ask a guy out on a date, you know, it, it, the odds are he's going to react positively, assuming you actually know the person. I'm, I'm not talking about asking out a complete stranger on a dating app. We're talking about dating, how things have changed in the dating world, what strategies work and what strategies don't. My guest is John Berger, and he is author of the book, Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on something you should know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So, John, is it your sense that the problem, the, the lack of success that people have with dating is it that they're meeting the wrong people or they're meeting people and then something goes wrong after that? I mean, not to belabor the point, but I kind of feel like this goes back to the problem with online dating. And to me, one of the reasons why the breakup rates for these relationships are so high is that people are much more inclined much quicker to pull the plug on the relationships when one party does something wrong or says something wrong. Well, you're calling them relationships, but my sense is that a lot of online dating never gets to be a relationship. It's, you know, one or two dates, you find something wrong, and that's it. It's not like you're breaking up because you never were. That's a great point. But but just think about it. You know, when a, a first date with somebody you meet on a dating app is a blind date with a complete stranger. Back when you were dating, how how commonplace were blind dates with complete strangers? Well, well, it depends on what you mean by complete stranger. I mean, you, they may be someone you've never met before, but probably you have some mutual friend. You have someone in common. Right. There was some connection. There was some some connection, maybe a friend of a friend. So there was some accountability there. So that like, maybe it's your best friend's cousin or something like that, or, you know, but, but that degree of accountability is really important. But the, the kind of blind dates we're seeing now on dating apps are really are, are, are not something we saw a whole lot of, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And if you think about it, if you're going out with somebody, you know, somebody you know from work or from church or from the dog park, or even just a friend of a friend that you met at a party, you already know something about the person. So basically you're not starting at zero, but so many of these first dates that are created by dating apps, you're starting at zero. So it doesn't really surprise me that the breakup rates are gonna be higher because you don't really, you're not starting with things in common. So my sense is that the big difference between going out on a date with a friend of a friend or someone from work versus going out on a date with someone you meet on a dating app, when you meet somebody on a dating app, your defenses are up. You're looking for where the trouble spots are. You're looking for red flags. It's a very defensive game. If you talk to particularly younger women about how they approach first dates with people they meet on a dating app, it typically goes like this. They, you know, the, a day before, or a couple days before, they spend a lot of time Googling the guy to make sure that, you know, Bob, the handsome hedge fund manager, isn't actually Billy Bob, the ex-con, that he really is single, uh, not, not married with four kids. And then on the day of the date, 
there's a safety plan involved that, you know, the, the particularly women, they'll tell their roommate or their best friend or their sister or their mother, look, I'm going to be at, at Sushi Palace at seven o'clock on Saturday. If you don't hear from me, it's time to get worried. And <laughs> well, that's, I, not I, much it, a, that's not much of a safety plan. That's more well, of a funeral no, but, plan. But, but, but I, no, no, that's a, that's a good point. But I just want you to think about how that kind of a mindset going into a first date is likely to affect the outcome of that first date. And, you know, there's a ton of research showing that the way we meet and our comfort level on a first date has a big outcome, not just on the first date, but on, on relationship, on the relationships in general. So if you go into a first date anxious and fearful that's very likely to impact the outcome of the relationship. Well, in my single days, I tried online dating. And my experience is that if you've done online dating for any length of time, your expectations sink so low because of your experiences <laughs> and that the first date is spent mostly looking for reasons to run rather than looking for the good in this person, you're trying to find the red flags, which, you know, and as soon as you find one, ah, psh, we're done. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I interviewed a woman who told me that she used to spend all of her online first dates trying to poke holes in the guy's stories because, you know, she had had so many men who deceived her, lied to her, took advantage of her, that she became disillusioned and kind of went into these first dates expecting the worst. And you know, she described online dating to me as a doubter's game. And she she's now engaged to um, a guy she met through a mutual friend. And she told me that when she went out on her first date with this guy, she didn't even bother Googling him. And she told me she didn't have to because she knew that her friend, her close friend, would never, ever, ever set her up with a man who was unkind or untrustworthy. Even though the guy wasn't exactly what she was expecting. And, and actually, in an online dating setting, that would have been a problem if, um, if his reality didn't match up with his online presentation. But because he was so, she was so open to new possibilities and because she trusted the mutual friend, it didn't matter that he, that, uh, he wasn't exactly what she was expecting. And she told me this was actually the closest thing to love at first sight she'd ever experienced. Well, and, and in large part because her guard was down. Exactly. Yes. Bingo. Without mentioning necessarily mentioning the names, but I wonder if, are, are there any differences? Is there any research to show that some dating apps are better than others? Or are they all in pretty much in the same category? I mean, the dating app I used to like the most was Hinge, but they changed their business model. I mean, Hinge, Hinge initially, when it was founded, you had to be kind of a, a friend or a friend of a friend of, with, with the other person on Facebook before the app would connect you for a possible date. And to me, that made perfect sense. But Hinge actually kind of abandoned that business model. And now they're, it's basically the same as every other dating app. But if, but if you're asking me what my favorite dating app is today, it's actually not even a dating app. It's, it's meetup.com, which, as you probably know, is just an online venue that allows people to kind of meet up in the real world. People with shared interests allows them to meet up in the real world ostensibly it has nothing to do with dating, but I'm, I'm a big fan of fan of meeting people in, in the wild, so to speak. So if you're a runner, join a running group. If you want to go clean up the beach, you know, go join some beach cleanup crew. If you, you know, if you want to play beach volleyball, um, you know, join a beach volleyball group. I think, I think meeting people, in the real world in this way is much more likely to kind of lead to deeper connections than can, you know, going out on a first date uh, with a complete stranger. 
What about uh, dating services where there's actually people who are trying to match people up? So I, I have a lot of friends who are professional matchmakers, and the ones I'm thinking of are brilliant. Um, you know, they have kind of a sixth sense for what what may be holding back their clients um, romantically, and they and they really know who's compatible and who isn't. The problem is that the the, the, the quality matchmakers, the top matchmakers, particularly in cities like New York or LA or London, you know, they, they charge, you know, $2,000, $3,000 a month. And, you know, I'm not going to tell the average single because most people can't afford that. Well, you often hear that dating is a numbers game, that if you want to find someone, you're probably going to have to go out on several dates with several different people in order to find somebody compatible. But it does seem that, that if you have someone that you have something in common with, it just it makes perfect sense that that's just much more likely to work. Your, I, mean, I think the reason that couples who already know each other from work or from school or from church, the, the reason they get to committed relationships faster is because, because they they have a sense of whether they're compatible before the first date. They're not waiting for date six to figure out if they're compatible. I mean, so many of the couples I interviewed who met in the workplace, they knew before the first date that there was something real there. Well, I think those two pieces of advice you gave earlier, that is, it's okay for women to ask men out and to not try to play hard to get, because it, that just seems kind of, I don't know, it seems kind of old-fashioned and and outdated advice. The problem is that this advice runs counter to pretty much all the conventional dating wisdom that we've seen over the past 20, 30 years. I mean, books like The Rules or Ignore, Ignore the Guy, Get the Guy, they kind of preach this mantra that a guy won't like you if you seem to like him. And I don't know if, you know, maybe I wasn't dating in the 1960s or 1950s. Maybe that worked back then. But in kind of a post-Me Too world, if a woman seems disinterested, the average guy is not going to assume that she's playing hard to get. He's going to assume that she's actually not interested. So a woman who's assertive and takes a chance and asks the guy out, I just think has this huge built-in advantage. Well, clearly things have changed a lot in the world of dating, and it's really interesting to hear, even for someone like me who's not in the dating scene anymore, but for someone who is and who is looking, your advice is really important that, in fact, online dating may not be the best way to go, and there are some other strategies that can really help move the process along. John Berger has been my guest. The name of his book is Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, John. Thanks for being on the podcast. All right. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive licensed therapist at Talkspace, You'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. 
Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. People have been talking for a long time now about shortening the 40-hour work week. The argument is that we don't need to work so much, that we need more work-life balance, that there's more to life than work. And maybe, just maybe, we would be more productive and do better work if we didn't have to put in so many hours. On the other hand, the people on the other side of the argument say things like, look, people get plenty of time off. You know, every time there's a holiday on a Monday, it seems everybody takes the Friday before off as well. And we have tons of vacation. We have a lot of holidays. And what we really need to do is get the work done. And if people aren't there, the work doesn't get done. So let's take a look at this through the eyes of Joe Sanuk. Joe is an entrepreneur who's really looked hard at this topic. He's written a book called Thursday is the new Friday. How to work fewer hours, make more money, and spend time doing what you want. So I think we know where Joe comes down on this topic, but let's dig into the details. Hey, Joe, welcome to Something You Should Know. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Michael. So I'm not sure how we got to the 40-hour work week, but, you know, in many ways it seems to work pretty well. So where did it come from, and why should we reconsider it? What's wrong with it? Where's, where's the flaw? So if we go back 4,000 years or so to the Babylonians, uh, they just made up the seven-day week. And, and so this thing that we think is solid, the seven-day week, was just totally made up. There's nothing in nature that points to it. The Egyptians had an eight-day week. The Romans had a 10-day week. So if we just start with the week as we know it was totally made up. But then if we fast forward to the late 1800s, early 1900s, the average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day. And then what happened from there was they were all working these farmers' schedules, even if they weren't farmers. And then in 1926, Henry Ford gave us the 40-hour work week, which was a great step for human evolution and for work evolution, but it was really to sell more cars. It was He had the idea that on the weekends, if people had a fast mode of transportation, they would buy it because they weren't going to buy a car just to get to work faster. So then if we fast forward to the pandemic of 2021 and 2020, we see that we all were shown a different way of thinking, that the biggest key performance indicator was not to sit in a chair for 40 hours. Well, it sounds good, you know, that we're getting more modern and more efficient and we have a different way, a more modern way of looking at life in the world. But how do we know that a shorter work week actually works? It makes sense. How do we know that? Uh, and so we see emerging research right now um, that's really showing this. Uh, the largest one is the Iceland study that just came out about a month ago. Uh, 2,500 people across multiple industries in a multi-year study working 32 hours a week over four days. So it wasn't even 40 hours within four days. It was 32 hours. And they saw boosts in productivity boosts in health outcomes, and also boosts in happiness. So if we think about they had more productivity in 32 hours than in 40 hours, we would think that 20% drop in time would actually be a 20% drop in productivity. But we're just not seeing that. And the research continues to show us that our best work happens when we actually slow down first and then dive into the work using the neuroscience to guide how we do that work. Aren't there a lot of jobs, though, that are not adaptable to this. I mean, if you have to get so much done in a week, you have to get so much done in a week. And if you can do it in 30 hours, well, good for you. But it takes most people 40 and that's just their job. Yeah, I think there are going to be industries that the applicability is different in the same way that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were people that said, wait, we're working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week. How are we going to change you know, Henry Ford? I, I think there will be those people with the industrialist mindsets or even jobs that have to keep with that industrialist mindset that we just say, yes, this is how it is. But 
I would argue that through experimenting, through trying A-B tests between different teams to try taking, say, half of a Friday off and then looking at the key performance indicators, we may see that there's actually a lot that we can do in fewer hours. Um, but the industrialist model is we have the blueprint, we make it happen. Here's the exact machine that we're creating. Whereas the new business model that's emerging is more of an evolutionary model where we're adapting and changing and growing while doing experiments to try to see if it works in different industries and then have those teams report out the best experiments that happened within those teams. So what's the explanation if you take people and cut their 40-hour work week down to 32 hours and they actually turn out more work and they're happier. Why are they happier? And how did they do that if it took them 40 hours before and now it only takes them 32? What happened under the surface? Yeah, I, I love the case study of Kalamazoo Valley Community College to, to answer this question because KBCC, it's a small community college in Southwest Michigan. And when you think about colleges and community colleges, they're behemoths. There's huge institutions oftentimes that are very unmovable. Um, but there was this guy, Ted Forrester there, that he teaches in the HVAC. He's an HVAC instructor. So he's teaching heating and cooling in large buildings. So he noticed that every Friday, there were very few students in the summer that were coming to campus. And he took pictures from the roof every Friday for a whole summer to show this. So he presented to the board in the fall. This was probably five or six years ago and said, you know, here's what our parking lots look like on Fridays. Uh, here's how much it cost us to do air conditioning in this building on Fridays. Uh, and then they said, well, what should we do about this? And he advocated for a four day work week in the summertime. Now, what they saw happen was more than just air conditioning savings. Uh, they saw that the offices then were able to be more flexible to be able to get open earlier, open later. Students then were able to come in more often. So they saw student outcomes go up. So you saw that people were more effective in their time because they had fewer hours. So did they focus on their worst 15 tasks of the week or their best 15? They focused on their best 15. And so week after week, each team is then doing better and better work. And then we also saw that their health outcomes have continued to, to go up and that their healthcare costs have gone down. And, and so on top of that, millions of dollars in air conditioning savings. What about the argument though, that we have so many holidays and we add holidays and the holidays are usually on a Monday, which means that people end up taking the Friday before off so they can have a four day weekend. That, that people here in the US do get a lot of time off and and that to arbitrarily cut another day to cut fridays off every week well it's kind of just as arbitrary as the 40-hour week but but the concern is like well when will the work get done if everybody's taking all this time off mm. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we actually don't have that many holidays. Uh, the rest of the world has quite a bit more time off than in the United States. Uh, and, and not that that needs to be our case here in the States, but uh, I think that's where each individual business can ask themselves, what's a step forward for us? Because for the most part, I would say that adults are busier than they need to be. They're more unhealthier than they need to be. Uh, I, I walked through a 30-year health study that looked at a number of different factors, and our sleep is significantly worse than what we would say is optimized for our brains. Uh, our stress levels, our cortisol levels, all those things that indicate higher levels of stress than we need uh, is through the roof. Uh, and I think that when we were in the pandemic, uh, in the midst of it, and during lockdown in 2020 and 2021, a lot of us got a glimpse into that the box that had been created for us by the industrialists may work in some industries, but that there's also a number of different areas that we can apply things differently, that we can shift. And I think we're seeing that in this next generation um, where they aren't just thinking about having a job that's you know a 40-hour-a-week job, but instead they're saying, what's the life I want to create? What are the outcomes? What's the impact? What are all those things that maybe I can create on my own where I don't need to just have someone say, come into the office from eight to five every day to make it happen? Yeah, well, but there are those jobs that where people are paid by the hour. And so if you cut their hours, you cut their pay. Sure. Yeah. But in looking at those types of things, uh, do we want our lowest income earners to have their hours cut? Do we want to have living wages? Do we want to have those kind of discussions? I think that's definitely a, a macro level discussion for us to say, if we're going to switch to something healthier, 
do we want that to be on the backs of our most vulnerable people? Does that feel like the kind of society we want to create? I mean, I would say not, but I think that's a healthy debate that we could potentially have. So, and so you would do what differently? Well, I mean, I think that when we look at individuals that are working hourly, um, I would want to look at, is this just a service-based industry? Is this an area that we're going to move to a four-day work week? You know, we could make that same argument that you're making and say, well, then why should we even give them a weekend? Why wouldn't we have them work seven days a week? They could work more. Like why have any sort of employment or labor law kind of based on that question you just asked? And so if we're going to say that a weekend is okay, like the shift into a three-day weekend is not okay in some way. I think that's where we would want to examine uh, different industries and see if we want to have different labor laws and have that discussion uh, beyond uh, just the typical kind of five-day workweek model. What about when companies try this model? Here's your work. It takes you as long as it takes you to get it done. And if it's done in 30 hours, great. If it's done in 40 hours, great. But so, so you do it where you want, when you want, however you want. It just has to get done. Does that work? Yeah, it, it often does work. But the problem with a lot of the supervisors or owners is they see we've been paying people X number of dollars to do what we thought took 40 hours and they just got it done in 25 hours. And then they jump in and they say, well, let, let's increase the output that we want people to do for the same amount of money. And so rather than, than giving those people that extra time off or creativity time, they then say, holy cow, they were only at 55% capacity before. Uh, we need to now amp this up. Or in future hires, they then go back to the old model or, or change it. And then they kind of shoot themselves in the foot in that situation where, yes, that makes sense. But then um, the individuals no longer have that positive reinforcement to be able to work as hard as they can because they don't get that free time back. Yeah, well, that, that does seem to be a pro- if if yeah, if you what used to take you 40 hours a week, now you can get done in 25. Why was I paying you for 40 hours of your time? I mean, it was happening anyway. And, right, and that's right. that's the part that, that we see is that the productivity, uh, oftentimes people aren't at that 100% productive. Uh, but when we're seeing what does the company actually want to achieve, um, the shift that we're seeing, especially post-pandemic, is the biggest key performance indicator in the past was showing up for 40 hours and not leaving. Like That is not an effective way to motivate people or compelling enough to get people to leave their houses now to come in. So we're seeing this great resignation because of that. So then the next step in is going to be how do we help people do work that they care about uh, in the time that they that they prefer to do, while also saying we as owners or business leaders um, need to have key performance indicators that help us get to where we're headed. So the way you're describing this is that it, there's lots of positives and not many negatives to cutting the 40-hour work week, but people have been proposing this for a long time. There's a lot of resistance. There must be a reason for the resistance so maybe it's not as rosy a picture as you're painting. Well, I, I think many of your questions point to what is the tough side uh, of this next step. Um, there was a messy middle after Henry Ford instituted the 40-hour work week. There were businesses that jumped in. There were businesses that didn't. Uh, it's not like overnight, all of a sudden, the 40-hour work week just worked for people. There were industries that it didn't work for. And right now, in this post-pandemic generation, we have a window of opportunity to say, how do we want to do this? And that's where I believe that us doing public experiments and sharing data and saying, Saying, here's what's worked is going to be what helps us really find what for the most part in society works. The biggest pushback is, well, I've already, I'm paying these people for 40 hours. Why would I ever give them an extra hour off? What happens with labor laws? What happens with um, unemployment insurance? What happens with uh, vacation days and sick days and all of those things too? Our whole system right now is based on an industrialist model. And, and so there's going to be a lot of things that are going to need some undoing, some reshaping. Uh, there may be you know, political things where we have to have new laws around specific areas. That That's going to be a messy process. Process. And we know that we are going to have a very difficult time going back to how things were pre-pandemic, that things are shifting. You know, right now, uh, at the time of this recording, everybody I know that owns a business is short-staffed and looking for more staff that's quality. How do you retain great staff? 
Well, you give them something that other people aren't giving them. And so for right now, a four-day work week that's flexible, that helps you figure out where are you headed and where do you want to go. I mean, that's a compelling argument for most people that want to have a job that has some meaning behind it. Now, at some point, that may become the norm. Um, but right now, it's a unique selling point for people that are looking to hire really top quality people. Well, you say you know it's a messy process, but it would seem to be less messy if you didn't have to drag people kicking and screaming to change. So there must there must be an argument on the other side of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that the big argument is that the research continues to show us that there's more creativity and productivity working fewer hours a week. Uh, you know, whether it's the Iceland study, uh, there's a study out of the University of Illinois that I talk about that um, looks at our vigilance decrement, vigilance, how well we pay attention to a task, decrement, meaning that it breaks down over time and looking at micro breaks, which uh, by even just having strategic micro breaks can totally eliminate vigilance decrement. So people can pay attention better while they're working and get more done in a shorter period of time. There's enough neuroscience that's come out over the last couple of years that really is changing the way that we view the brain, you know, being trained as a psychologist, to me, having that current research to say, how do we do this differently? What are we learning from science that we can actually implement? The way we did it five or 10 years ago is completely outdated when we look at the neuroscience. And so being able to step into how do we do our most effective work when we are working, and then also allow our staff and employees to step back and to genuinely be able to not be available 24-7, that's going to be better for the brain and also better for business. So, I mean, to me, that's the biggest argument is the science is showing us over and over that this can work. It's just a matter of that personal buy-in coming along. Yeah, well, that's what I'm trying to understand is if we've got all these studies that show the benefits of what you're talking about. And we've got examples of businesses that have done it and done it successfully. Then why is there still resistance? What's the argument on the other side of this if you had to put the hat on of people who don't buy into what you're talking about? What is the reason why they don't buy into it? I mean, I would say that at least what I'm hearing is they feel like it's not broke. Why should I try to fix it? Uh, that most businesses, I would say, um, are more reactionary than intentional. When the profits are down, that's when they make changes. They add the marketing, they add you know new sales, they um, cut staff. Um, rather than saying, where are we headed over the next six months to a year? How do we proactively make that happen? And so if we start with a posture of, we tend to react to the market instead of to create it. I mean, those type of people are going to continue to react instead of to be proactive. And so I would say the argument that I often hear is, we're doing okay. Why would we change things? Why would we gamble on something new if we don't know? When we see places like Kickstarter saying, you know what, in 2022, we're going to try the four-day work week. And, and they're doing that publicly. And they're going to, I imagine, be reporting out publicly. When we see more and more companies saying, this is going to be something that gets unique talent to come to us, I mean, that pushes back on the other side. But the other side of kind of that industrialist mindset, it has worked in a certain way for a while. Um, but this, to me, is that natural next step of business evolution. But there aren't always going to be people that buy into it right away until they see more and more evidence mounting. Yeah. Well, are there any businesses that, that I might know of that have done this successfully? And, you know, you're, you're painting a very rosy picture, but I'm wondering, too, if there are businesses that struggle with this, that it doesn't work, or that there, there are problems that it isn't necessarily as rosy a picture as you're painting. Yeah, I mean, Microsoft Japan did an enormous study that showed great outcomes, and then they they cut the program. Uh, and we we reached out to them numerous times to get kind of the behind the scenes of why uh, they weren't willing to publicly talk about why. And, and so it was reported, you know, across the globe in the papers that they were doing this four day work week in Microsoft Japan that it was successful, and then the program just disappeared. Uh, and so we see that these things happen publicly that it works well, and then you know they go back to the old way. Uh, sometimes companies will publicly say why, and other times they won't. I imagine, too, there's this, this fear that this is a slippery slope, that if we, if we go to a four-day week, well, Joe's going to be back in a couple of years with his new book about the three-day week, and then there's going to be the two-day week. Yeah. And, and <laughs> All my friends are like, let me guess the sequels. Wednesday's the new Thursday's the new Friday. Right. right. That's a valid argument of, well, when do we stop? But I would say 
right now we know that the five day week, and, and I would say the amount of people that are actually working 40 hours, it's probably significantly more than that. When we look at the data, uh, it's not working for the average person's health and lifestyle outcomes. And so moving to the four day week, I think is a huge step for the evolution of business and for people in the same way that 1926, the 40 hour work week was a big step, but we will continue to see if that's where it ends. Uh, you know, we were working 10 to 14 hours a day, six to seven days a week at, you know, the late 1800s. Uh, so yeah, the 40 hour work week, the four day work week, continuing to move that may occur. Uh, I would say that's the challenge of the, the next generation after we achieve the four day work week to say, what kind of health outcomes do we want? What kind of lifestyle outcomes? How do we creatively address the problems of our era? What I do know is that when we're stressed out and maxed out, that's not when we go to new things. And so if we look at the challenges we're most likely to see in the next hundred years, do we want a population of people that are stressed out and maxed out in their jobs? Or do we want people that are able to creatively address the problems of the next hundred years? We have no idea what kind of jobs will be created. I mean, my kids are going to most likely be doing something that has yet to be invented for their job. And so to say, we want the most creative, innovative people moving into the next hundred years of problems that's not going to happen when we're maxed out and stressed out. And so if we think with that long-term perspective, how do we get there? I would argue that working the four-day work week is going to be a step in that direction. Well, it does seem like it's coming. As you point out, you know, it wasn't all that long ago that people were working six or seven days a week. And I mean, that seems so archaic now. And I imagine at some point in the not too far distant future, people will look back at, wow, you worked five days a week? in a row? That's incredible. So I, I suspect people's attitudes about work are changing, and that's probably what's driving this. Joe Senek has been my guest, and the name of his book is Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. And you will find a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Joe. Michael, thank you so much for having me on the show. The simple tossing of a coin has been used to settle disputes and make decisions for centuries, and there does seem to be something to the idea. In fact, if you're having trouble making a decision, there are good reasons to pull out a quarter out of your pocket and call heads or tails. Here's why it helps. First of all, it forces you to narrow the options down to just two. And secondly, when you flip a coin and it lands heads or tails, you have a gut reaction, and you should be ready to acknowledge that gut reaction, because if you don't like the result of your toss, and then you find yourself going for, uh, uh, let's do two out of three, <laughs> that's an indication that you're probably not ready to make that decision yet. And that is something you should know. Hey, we could really use your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're this close, this close to 5,000 reviews ratings, and you could help us reach that, that mark if you would just go to Apple Podcasts. It takes like no time at all. Leave a rating and review, and, and hopefully it's a five-star one. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.